Good to see all the zombies back from San Luis. You scare me. Hallelujah. So I'm going to get 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 for us. Okay, Daniel. Uh, Dave, could you get uh, Acts 2, 41 to 47? And somebody get Acts 5, 42 for me. Uh, Al. So we're looking at the community of believers, which is the... uh, blueprint or the divine plan for the church, how God uh, uh, determined the church should uh, uh, exist, its structure, how we should relate to it, how we should behave ourselves in the house of God. This is our basic text, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Paul says, I'm writing you so that you'll know how you conduct yourself and behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of Jesus Christ. And so uh, Paul is concerned that we know what our relationship is to the church, the impact the church should have on our lives, uh, how we, uh, basically what the church is all about. And that's what we're looking at. (coughs) Excuse me. We spent uh, the last couple of weeks looking at the necessity of the church in our lives as believers, that we are the church uh, and uh, we are called to uh, give ourselves to it and relate to the church, uh, to give ourselves to the fellowship. We looked at uh, uh, God's plan for the believer to be in church, not to be wandering around, uh, bouncing from church to church, not uh, uh, watching TV evangelists and calling that church. We saw that none of that is applicable or appropriate We see God has called us to commit ourselves to a local expression of the body of Christ. We looked last week at the nature of our commitment, that this is not a just a Sunday morning casual affiliation, at least not scripturally. There are many who live that way, but that certainly isn't what you see in the Bible. And I just wanted to grab these two scriptures very quickly, drive the point home, get your mind thinking back to some of the stuff we covered, Acts 2, 41 to 47. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking bread and in prayers. They continued steadfastly. The word steadfastly is the word uh, uh, proskotereo. It literally means to be earnest towards, to persevere, to be constantly diligent, to be in a place to attend assiduously all the exercises, okay, to continue to wait on. So this is very strong language, steadfastly. It says to, to uh, uh, the, I think the, the pivotal definition is to attend assiduously, to give yourself completely. This, uh, this becomes the focus of our lives. Go ahead. Lord 
We see an enormous level of commitment as they sold things they had to support those who were added to the church. People, we understand historically the context for this. Uh, uh, people coming into Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost were there. They would have no lodging. They had uh, been saved, touched by the preaching of Peter. And uh, now they, they want to continue that relationship. Uh, uh, this is an amazing picture when you think about it. Uh, no one's told them you need to start a new organization. Uh, you need to be in church. Nothing. It's just a sovereign move of the Holy Spirit. And he births this church. And so they, they remain in the city of Jerusalem and they begin to build this church. Uh, they uh, uh, give of their own resource to meet the needs of these that are remaining. Uh, uh, it goes on and says that they continue daily that every day they met together and people were added to the church every day. This is a, an extreme level of commitment, uh, but it's what we see the, the church doing, okay? And so uh, people who object to commitment to the church, uh, and we hear this very often, uh, uh, clearly aren't looking at the Bible because the Bible gives us that exact picture that this isn't uh, just a, a light affiliation, this isn't a club, it's the body of Christ that we join ourselves to and we are uh, very, very much involved in, committed to, finding gifts, expressing them. We looked at all of this, I'm just uh, seeking to refresh your memory. Acts 5.42. Daily in the temple and in every house, in the home churches, uh, they cease not to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. And so this was, this was a, a level of commitment that is lost to modern Christianity. It has had uh, resurgences throughout history. You can look at uh, the Methodist movement with uh, Charles Wesley and uh, various movements uh, where people recaptured uh, the concept of the local church and commitment. Uh, but uh, this is something that, especially in this generation, is by and large wholly lost to us. And so uh, we've uh, spent enough time on this. We see very clearly that there is a, uh, a commitment and, and a, uh, a joining of our life to the local church that is expected of each and every one of us. Uh, and uh, we need to take that very seriously. Now, as we looked at this, I mentioned earlier uh, one of the uh, one of the ways that we can discern this or see this, uh, especially when we were addressing the issue of church bouncing and uh, uh, the, the TV church and uh, the virtual church on the web, uh, uh, when we look at this, we see that God uh, has put us under leaders and that we are directly joined to specific leaders. We saw that the TV church and the church bouncing concept uh, uh, simply will not work practically in light of those commandments. So that gives us a, a springboard into the next thing that I want to look at, and that is the nature of authority and leadership in the church. This is something that, again, uh, is uh, very much questioned in the generation that we live in, and uh, it's something that we have to come to grips with scripturally uh, and deal with it. See, what is the model of Scripture? What, uh, how does this apply in my life? Why do we have pastors? What place should we give them in our lives? How far does their authority reach in our lives? We've all seen uh, the abuse of authority We've, from the uh, nonsense of papal infallibility, which is the claim that uh, you've got a man that uh, God uh, 
put over the church of Jesus Christ and he's the divine representation. He's the vicar of Christ. He's the, uh, he's the sole representation of Jesus. Everything he says, everything that pops out of his mouth is infallibly true. That's, uh, that's utter rubbish. You can't see that anywhere in scripture. And, uh, it's, it's a complete abuse of power. And we've seen the extremes of the shepherding movement where people, you know, they had to approach their pastor to find out if they could buy a car, if they could move into an apartment, if they could, uh, you know, what color shirt they had to wear today. This is absolutely absurd, the uh, lengths that some movements have gone to in, uh, uh, in the concept of authority in the church. We've all seen the abuses of, even in this fellowship, of megalomaniacal little men who've been given uh, just a modicum of authority and they lose it. That's a dangerous thing to give somebody power. And they, they go berserk sometimes if their egos aren't under control. And so we've seen this. And we've seen the abuses of this. And it's, it, it's sad, but it's true. It's there. We've seen the other extreme, uh, very much so in the Christian world at large, where uh, the pastor is so hands-off, he's, he's not leading at all. We've seen, uh, uh, you know, we know all of the horror story and we, and we deal with people from other churches who uh, have no concept of righteousness or holiness or standards or, or living for God because it's never preached to them. They're never challenged. They are never confronted. There is never any issue of discipline or there's never any issue of righteous living. We've seen, uh, uh, you know, pastors that are basically like substitute teachers at school. You know, they're just sort of there, and they're figureheads, but the, the kids run amok, and the church runs amok, and uh, uh, there's no exercise of authority once, whatsoever. Uh, there's a pastor that I'm acquainted with who will not counsel people. If you want to counsel, you talk to other people. The pastor's not responsible to counsel you. And so we see these, we see these extremes. We see uh, uh, the abuse of power and the controlling and dominating perception. We also see men who uh, relinquish all responsibility. They abdicate their pastoral role. And uh, we see that there's a breakdown uh, in both of these extremes. And so we want to get a look at uh, scripturally what, how does authority work in the church? Should there be authority? Should, maybe we should rule by uh, uh, committee. Maybe we shouldn't even have pastors. Maybe we should have, uh, you know, 15 different pastors. And uh, you just kind of pick and choose which ones you like. How does it work? How does it play out? What, are, what was God's design for authority in his church? That's the question we got to ask and we have to come to grips with uh, this morning. So let's look at some scriptures. Uh, first of all, Ephesians 4. Uh, verse 8 and verse 11 and 12. I'm skipping a couple of verses just not to confuse the issue. It's kind of a parenthetical statement that Paul makes. We're not going to look at it. Uh, but if Dennis would get us that. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 8 and verses 11 and 12. Uh, Don, if you get me uh, Luke 22, 24 to 27. Um, yeah, we cover this a little bit later. So let's, uh, let's have those verses initially. We'll look at a bit, bit more here in a moment. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Oh, that's not right. Ephesians 4. <laughs> 
When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Then he goes into a little parenthetical blurb we're not going to look at and then pick it up again in verse 11. These are the gifts that Paul speaks to in this particular portion of Scripture. There are other gift lists, so to speak, uh, in Corinthians and in Romans. And so, uh, but in this particular passage of Scripture, he speaks specifically about leadership gifts. And he says these are given to edify, to build up uh, uh, the church of Jesus Christ uh, and to bring it into maturity and to strengthen it uh, in the things of God. He speaks directly of apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. And so these are leadership gifts. Many times commentators call them office gifts. I don't like that. And we're going to look at a reason why in just a moment. What I want you to understand is that this is a gifting. There are a couple of things. Dave, we'll get it in just a minute. We'll open it. But there, this is gifting. This is something that God does in the lives of certain believers. Now, if you go into Corinthians and Romans, you see other gifting. Gifts of tongues, interpretation of tongues, uh, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, gift of helps, gift of governments, different kinds of gifting that God gives. And every member of the church we know... As you read Corinthians and Ephesians, every one of us has gifting. God uses each and every one of us in the body of Christ for a specific purpose, and He gives gifts to us, uh, supernatural divine enablement to fulfill destiny and calling in the church. Okay? So the first thing we need to make very clear is we are dealing with gifting. If you don't understand it as gifting, then what you see it as is an office. You see it as a clergy class. You see leadership in the church as a clergy class. This is what has happened historically in the church. Uh, you can trace it all the way back to the second century. There started to develop a clergy class mentality. And there are two primary evils that arise when you start thinking of clergy and laity. Because that's not what the picture the Bible gives us. The picture gives us the Bible. Uh, the, the Bible gives us a picture of believers, every one of us, having differing gifts. Okay, not two different tiers, not clergy laity, but every one of us as believers, and some of us having leadership gifting in the Church of Jesus Christ. If you if you begin to slip into a clergy office mentality uh, regarding uh, leadership in the church, there's two things that happen. The first thing that happens is the body abdicates its responsibility. It becomes a one-man show. It becomes the clergy's responsible for getting hold of God. The clergy's responsible for revival. The clergy's responsible for the move of God. Everything flows through clergy. I don't have a responsibility. I am simply a spectator. That's the first primary evil of clergy class. The second primary evil is we create an elite class in the church of Jesus Christ. And sooner or later, they begin to believe that propaganda and they become no longer servants, but they become superior. This is the thinking that begins to happen. It's not just evil men in pulpits that get this mentality. This is thrust upon them by the church, by the clergy class thinking. You're a different class. You're, you know, you're the fourth person of the Trinity. And so we get this 
odd mentality about these people. We don't recognize that they are simply exercising a gift deferring from another gift. Uh, It is a leadership capacity, but they're just people exercising a gift. This is critical to your proper understanding of what leadership is all about in the church. Christ gave gifts to the church. And then he names those gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor-teachers. Okay? And so uh, we, we understand that this isn't earned, this isn't merited. Clearly, we begin to see, and we'll look at this in a little bit, there are certain uh, uh, necessities that are imposed on leadership positions, and men must contend, they must give themselves. The truth of the matter is, any gift must be contended for. You've got to labor for it, you've got to exercise it, and so there are certain things, certain demands that are placed on a leader's life that are intrinsic in that gifting, but it is still a gift nonetheless, and that gift was never merited or earned. It was something that God put in a man, and he rose to that gifting. It doesn't make the recipient of the gift better or more important or superior. Being a pastor or an apostle is not the pinnacle of Christianity. It's not the apex of spirituality. It's not even what we contend for unless we're called, unless that's our gifting. Okay? And so you've got to keep this in its perspective. The statement here is that these particular gifts were given for the work of the ministry. Or literally, uh, uh, the toil of service. That's what these gifts are for. They are not for uh, uh, exaltation of an individual. That individual, if he is properly fulfilling his role, is actually getting under and serving people. It's not about domination and control and power. It's about empowering others to fulfill their destiny, to lead them into maturity, to edify them and build them up. Luke 22, 24 to 27. Here's the disciples, and they're arguing over which one of them is going to be the greatest. This is an amazing picture, because here they are following Jesus Christ, and they're already dickering about who's going to be Pope. This is amazing. This is so revealing of human nature. How can any one of us, in the presence of Jesus Christ, think that we are anything? But here they are arguing about who's the most anything. It's very clearly that Jesus was the greatest, okay? Uh, and yet he served. That's what it's all about. So go ahead. Okay, so he says uh, the, the Gentiles have a system of leadership and rulership where the leader lords over those that are below him. He says it won't be so in the kingdom of God. That's not the way the kingdom is structured. But if you're going to be chief, if you're going to be a leader, then you are going to be underneath. You are going to serve them. 
He says you are going to uh, uh, be a blessing and provide for them. And then he uses the picture and he says, uh, who's greater, the one who's served or the servant? Well, obviously the one who is served. And he says, what did I do ever since I came? How did I exercise my leadership in the kingdom of God? I've come and I've served you. I've come and I've served you. So he puts forth a kingdom principle that governs all government in the church of Jesus Christ. The purpose of any of these leadership giftings is to serve the people of God and to be a blessing in their life to help them to attain all that God wants them to attain and ultimately to make heaven their home. Now we're going to come back to this verse and look at it very carefully in a little bit. But I want you to understand that we're dealing with with gifting that is not designed to set a clergy class above everyone else. That's the first thing you have to see in this. The second thing you have to see is that it's not an ecclesiastical office or a function. This is why I I don't like the, the thought of calling these office gifts because an office implies an appointment. Okay, someone has been appointed to an office. Okay, and so what this eventually leads into is the thought that that we appoint pastors, we appoint apostles, we appoint prophets, we put them into an office uh, that they exercise in the church of Jesus Christ. When the Bible speaks of these men, it's speaking of a gift in operation, not an office. Let, let me see if I can clarify this for you. We've come to the point where we say, it's Pastor Lamb. That's, that's, that's his position. It's Pastor Lamb. But literally, if you look at it scripturally, if you think in the way the Bible thinks, a pastor is simply someone who is exercising the gift of God. I'm not sitting in an office. You can, you can put anybody in office of pastor as is revealed throughout the land. And you can put Anton LaVey and call him pastor if you want. And there are some men who probably are related to Anton and are sitting in pastoral office. Office is not what it's about. It's not an office. It's the exercise of a gift. It's like, how do you lead if nobody will follow you? If you're truly pastoring, then this gift is in operation and sheep follow shepherds. It's, it's an exercise of the gift. See, what we're always thinking of is the office. This is a, a position. No, it's the exercise of a gift. It's not an ecclesiastical office. I am simply doing what God has gifted me to do in the church of Jesus Christ. So I, uh, that's all I'm doing. I, it's, it's not like the church, although the church recognizes uh, ministry, and although the church ordains ministry, and the church uh, lays hands and sends ministry out, essentially what the church is doing is it's recognizing God's gifting. It's not saying, okay, we're putting you in an office. Because we can send men out, but if they can't lead, and if this office, or rather, if this gift is not in their life, then they'll go out and they'll never build a church. Just because you call them pastor doesn't make them a pastor. Just because someone has a gift of prophecy doesn't make them a prophet. Just because someone has certain characteristics in their life doesn't make them anything. The bottom line is that you and I have to understand leadership in the church is the exercise of a gift. It's not sitting in an office. This is 
has led to much error, especially in the generation we're living in. There's a group led by a man named Rick Joyner who, has, who have appointed themselves prophets and then have turned around and appointed others prophets. Now, because of the office of prophet, these men now feel that they can step into anyone's church and because they are prophets... They can speak to the church, correct everybody in there, correct the pastor, correct the, uh, the fellowship, and that's because that's my office. I'm a prophet. No, let me tell you about a prophet. A prophet is someone who speaks for God. And in the Old Testament, if they didn't get it just right, they were dead within a week. They were buried under a pile of stones. And so you can go ahead and say, well, you know, I'm going to speak for God. I'm going to come in and set everybody straight. But you know what? If the word that you speak doesn't come to pass, we're, we're, we're entitled to bury you. If this, what that really comes down to is saying that the people of God judge the prophecy. They're saying, was this valid or not? Is this gift in operation? Just because I claim an office doesn't mean I have a gift in operation. You see what I'm getting at? And so this has led to much error, much much fallacy, and this leads the church into insanity. And so these prophets are running around the country and uh, creating mayhem everywhere they go, dividing churches, creating enormous problems. Because they don't have a gift, they have an office. An office will kill you. A gift will, will build the church. Okay, we'll get to questions in just a moment. Okay? Finally, keep in mind that many of these gifts overlap. That uh, Paul functioned as an apostle, but he also functioned as a pastor teacher, but he also functioned as a prophet, and he functioned as an evangelist. Truth of the matter is, all of these gifts were given to Paul, and he functioned in all of them. And many, many times we see the overlap of gifting. We see men who function in a pastoral office primarily. Uh, Paul Campos strikes me as a perfect example of a man who functions primarily as in, in a gifting of, of a pastor. But many, many times his, his declarations have a prophetic edge to them. And I've heard him prophesy. And I've seen things he say come to pass. I, you know, he doesn't claim for himself the office of prophet. It's just a gift that is in operation. Uh, he's made himself available to God for that. It overlaps the pastoral gifting that is in his life. And many, many times we'll see this. This is true also in the body of Christ on any level of gifting. You, just because you uh, speak in tongues doesn't mean that's the end of your gifting. doesn't mean there's not another gift that God wants to give you and uh, there's not another place of responsibility that you have to exercise in the church. Okay, so we're looking at Ephesians 4. This is the primary picture of what leadership is in the church. Let's open real quick. I saw a couple hands. Jeff? So here it is, and what they actually were selecting, the church was selecting um, deacons in the church or servants or ministers as such, okay? There is uh, a, a clear delineation between uh, 
pastor or uh, an overseer and a deacon. If you go to Timothy, you'll see uh, sets of cr- uh, credentials, qualifying, uh, qualifying exercises for both of these positions in the church. You will not see the church electing oversight. You will not see the church anywhere in Scripture appointing or oversighting. And this is what Jeff is talking about, the council hiring and firing pastors. Biblically, that doesn't exist. It doesn't happen. The church doesn't vote on or elect their pastor. The whole concept of sending out uh, uh, search uh, uh, committees and finding somebody and electing, well, do we like the way he preaches? Can you imagine how that hamstrings leadership when uh, the bottom line is if you'll preach what we like, then you get your job. If you don't preach what you like, you're out of here. Now, that's the way the average church functions. That is insanity in the highest order because... How many of you understand that much of the Word of God is stuff we don't like? And if it's left to a vote, you'll never vote for God. You'll always vote for Bill Clinton. If it's left to a vote, if it's left to our choice. So nowhere do you find leadership in the church being elected or placed in office by the church. You find Apostles appointing elders, you find uh, elders appointing elders, leadership recognizing leadership ministry. But again, we've got to avoid, we've got to be uh, careful not to get into the whole thought of appointing. Because leadership ultimately, in placing leadership in place, is the recognition by leadership and by the church that there is a gift in operation in this man. Okay. Uh, Dave, you had a thought earlier on. Very good, very good. And so ultimately it's to serve, not to exalt the individual. Some of these are clearly supernatural gifting. It kind of sometimes overlaps with what we'd call natural talent. But again, you know, you've got to ask yourself, where does natural talent come from? Ultimately natural talent's got to be a gifting from God. I cannot, uh, you know, throw a football across a football field. I can't do it. I I could smoke dope. I could never play football. That's what I was good at. Okay? And so, you know, my gift obviously wasn't football. It was dope. No, that's not true. That isn't true. See? See? Do you see how easily false doctrine gets started? Do you see how quickly we twist it to our own ends? Okay, but there are scriptural giftings, and and I don't believe that, that this necessarily limits all of the gifts, but I think there's clearly a a supernatural gifting that comes in each person's life and enables them for certain tasks to, of ministry to the body of Christ and to the world at large. Ike. Yep. And the pastor 
Okay, so... Right. Yeah. Okay. And so here's Ike, who has functioned in a different paradigm. He's been out there. See, we don't we don't understand how good we got it. Okay. But once you've been out there, and I've been out there, it's a weird world out there. And he's saying by experience, when you get into this whole clergy, lady, elect, appoint kind of mentality, rather than recognizing the gifting of God, it ends up not meeting needs at all. It doesn't work because it's not God's plan. It's not the way God designed the church. Owen. Very good. <laughs> Trying to be youthful. <laughs> yeah. They haven't fired him yet? Okay. So here, here is a, um, a perfect case in point of what I mentioned earlier. When you have a clergy class, uh, those underneath abdicate. They don't see any function or role in the church. They end up saying, well, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, so I'll just go to youth meeting. Okay? Tony, you had a question or a thought? You raised your hand or were you just stretching? Don't feel bad, Tony. Very good. Very observant. We're going to look at that. There is a hierarchy in leadership. There is a hierarchy in leadership. Casey, last question before we move on real quick. Very good. So we're going to look at that a little bit more, but we see the centurion recognizing in Jesus' leadership. So he doesn't say, well, Jesus, how did you become a leader? He simply recognizes it and submits to it. Okay? So 
We're going to look at that in just a little bit. Okay, so I want to look very quickly at some scriptures to just kind of look at these gifts in operation, and it'll give us a little overview of uh, the way God designed His church. So let's have Luke 6.13. Somebody, get me, uh, somebody over here, Luke 6.13. Rod, uh, Revelations 21.14. Jake, uh, Acts 1.20-22. Pete, Sam, give me... 1 Corinthians 9.1, Acts 14.14, Jeff, Galatians 1.19, Jake, uh, Dave, give me Romans 16.7, Acts 16.4, Eric, Acts 15.2, Daniel, 1 Corinthians 12.28, Tony, uh, uh, okay, that's it for now. We'll get some more in a moment. So let's have Luke 6.13. Okay, he called to himself, Jesus calls to himself his disciples, and of them he names 12 apostles. So taken from amongst the common group of men, there are 12 that he speaks this gifting into their life, and these are the original 12 apostles that we are all acquainted with. Revelations 21.14. So here's a, a, a foundational apostleship in the church. There's something unique about the original 12. And we understand uh, that uh, there were 12, but Judas blew it, went out and hung himself. And so that's not one of the names that's written on the foundation stone, Acts 1, 20 to 22. Okay, so here's an interesting insight into the way the early church viewed apostles. uh, And uh, unfortunately, this has been misinterpreted uh, uh, to mean that the only apostles were the 12 apostles because in Acts, he says, the qualification for the man we're looking for to fill Judas's place is that he has to have been with us from the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan till his crucifixion. He's been with us all along. Uh, He's got uh, the same kind of insight we do and the same kind uh, of leadership gifting. And so, uh, we see very clearly that God's original plan did have this unique feature, that these 12 men had this dynamic in them. They were with Jesus from start to finish, uh, and uh, there was something very unique and very special about them, uh, but that is not the end of apostolic gifting. Very clearly in the Bible, it goes way beyond that. 1 Corinthians 9.1. Paul now says, am I not an apostle? He wasn't one of the twelve. In fact, he persecuted the church. And yet now there's recognition of gifting. He sees what God is doing. Am I not an apostle? Acts 14, 14. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul. Now we've got Barnabas an apostle. Uh, Galatians 1, 19. The other apostles I saw I none save James. So now we got James thrown into the mix. Uh, Romans 16, 7. Okay. 
Andronicus and who? Juniper? Junia? Okay, and so here's, here's, man, we don't even know what these guys were about. We have no insight into their life or ministry whatsoever, and yet they're chief among the apostles. And so obviously the apostolic gifting moved on. The very fact that in many of Paul's writings, he warned against false apostles makes it clear that apostolic ministry was still rising up and this ministry had to be uh, carefully evaluated to its legitimacy and uh, recognized where it was legitimate and uh, dismissed where it was false apostles trying to rise up and gain power over the church. But we see very clearly that it went on beyond the original 12. It's an ongoing gift, and it's still an ongoing gift today. Now let's take a, a real quick look at what it, what it was about. Acts 16.4. Okay, certain members of the church, pastors, elders, have gone out from Jerusalem. They have brought with them letters and teachings of the apostles. And these were viewed as uh, overarching uh, principles that the church would abide by. We, we're not going to go into all the details, but there was question about uh, uh, meats that were offered to idols. There was questions about Gentiles and circumcision. There were a number of questions that were confronting the early church. And so the apostles were the ones who said, no, this is the way it is. And their word went out and it had, uh, it had weight. It had a controlling uh, virtue in it. In other words, it had, it had great gravity. When the apostles said, uh, we're not going to have the Gentiles circumcised, then that was the word to the church. We don't have to circumcise the Gentiles. That was it. There was no more debate. There was no more discussion. The word went forth. The apostle was exercising overarching leadership. Acts 15.2. Again, we see debate rising in the church. We have leaders involved in the debate. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to deal with this? Different pastors have different perspectives. I don't know what to do. Okay, let's go up to the apostles. And let's get their perspective, and that's going to be the deciding influence. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. It's an interesting uh, statement going back to what I've already laid down about gifting. But now Paul puts a certain hierarchy in it. And he says that God's given these gifts to the church and he specifically says first apostles, then prophets, then teachers, and then goes on through. And so there is a hierarchy of recognition. The, uh, the apostolic gift is a gift of overarching leadership. It supersedes... Any other individual leadership that may exist in the church, it is the deciding influence in issues that face the church. For us, perhaps, the clearest existing model of this is Pastor Mitchell. He has apostolic gifting that is at work. Okay, This is a gift. It's not an office that he appointed himself to. Uh, God raised him up. He exercises an influence uh, that is spiritual control. Uh, it's anointing of God. In Pauline fashion, God has used him uh, to raise up a fellowship that is worldwide, just like he did with Paul. 
Pastor Mitchell's not a pope. He's not infallible. He's not the big Maguzu. He's not the evil emperor. He's none of that. He's a man who has apostolic gifting. Okay? And that apostolic gifting is recognized by leadership throughout all around the world. There's people who say, you know what? God's used him. God's anointed him. God's raised up a ministry through him. He's traveled all over the world. He's brought clarity. He's brought insights very clear that we have this leadership gift given to the church today. Okay? And so this doesn't mean that when we get to heaven, there's going to be a cornerstone in Jerusalem named Pastor Mitchell. Okay? Those 12 are taken, and that's the end of it. It simply means this is a gift... And God has never retracted any of His gifts from the church. He never said, oh, we don't need that anymore. Because we very clearly do need that. Can you imagine, without apostolic gifting to this church, how insane we would be? Because, you know, we all know uh, that as pastors, boy, (laughs) we can miss it by a country mile sometimes. That's why we have conferences and pastor gets up and hits us all in the head. Boink! And we go, oh, I get it. And we all come around and see the light. Okay, And so there's a gifting that is an operation. It's very clearly a hierarchical gifting that is set over and exercises a great amount of influence and control in the direction of the church. The final analysis is an apostolic gift. Okay, let's look at the gift of prophets real quickly. Ephesians 2.20. Somebody get that for me. Ephesians 2.20. Don. Uh, Acts 15.32. Mike. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.3-4. Dave. Uh, Acts 11, 27 and 29, Lucas, Acts 21, 10 and 11, Casey. Okay. Uh, Acts 13, 1, uh, Jake. Okay, so let's look at the gift of prophets, Ephesians 2, 20. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus himself being a chief cornerstone. So the prophetic office, especially in the foundational uh, basis of the church, the prophetic office is very important and uh, apparently directly related to or directly associated with apostolic ministry. Acts 15.32 Okay, Judas and Silas, being prophets themselves, exhorted and strengthened the brethren. It's the first place we see that gift in operation. There's an exhortation and a strengthening that moves through prophetic office and or prophetic gifting. 1 Corinthians 14, 3 and 4. He who prophesies speaks edification exhortation and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. So again, we see this, we see this functioning in Acts that there is an exhortation, an edification, a comfort that is in operation through prophetic gifting. Now many, many times you can see very clearly, that's, that sounds just like a pastor, doesn't it? Pastors exhort, pastors reprove, pastors comfort. So there is a, an overlapping here. Many times in the operation of pastoral office, 
you exercise the gift of prophecy as it is thus defined. See, we always think of prophecy as um, a comet is going to hit uh, the Empire State Building on the 15th of January. That's prophecy. That's what we think is prophecy. But that's not what we see here, is it? We see edification, comfort, exhortation. There is an element of foretelling that also appears in prophecy. But what I want you to see is many, many times the gift of prophecy comes through in men that, you know, aren't... It's not an office. It's a gift, okay? And it has this quality of edification, exhortation, and comfort. Acts 11, 27 and 29. So here's a fourth telling. Now here's a clear indication something is coming. Acts 21, 10 to 11. Very interesting. He comes and he tells Paul what's going to happen to him if he goes to Jerusalem. And out of this prophecy, he and the elders begin to beg Paul not to go. Don't do this. This is bad. But Paul says, no, no, this is God ordained. You're missing the point. Okay? And so he doesn't say, okay, the prophet said uh, that this is what's going to happen, so I'm not going to go. What he said was, no, you've missed the point. God's telling me, I know this is going to happen, but there's a reason for this. There's a purpose that I have to fulfill. And in going to Jerusalem, yeah, I'm going to go there in bonds, but I, this is God's plan. This is God's purpose. So there, we see this fourth telling, but we see how it functions many times in the church. Uh, Agabus was recognized in the gift. We see this function in our fellowship. Uh, we see uh, prophecy uh, come forth sometimes. Uh, um, sometimes we see things come forth in the name of prophecy that miss the mark. Uh, but uh, you got to understand that this is, a, this is a gift that flows many, many times through other gifting or in concert with other gifting in the church, okay? Uh.